right here by the airport. So I always grew up, even when we was in the projects, seeing B-52s and Airbus and, and all types of 747s fly across the projects. Will Lewis used to stand outside his family's two-bedroom home in the housing projects near Atlanta and watch planes fly overhead. I always had an interest in airplanes and stuff. I just didn't know how I was going to ever tie it into my life, but I was always interested, and I would collect these different um, planes or whatever, and I still have some to this day. Like the planes flying over him, Will said that economic opportunity, higher education, and even air travel all seemed out of reach. Yeah, so... Family of nine, my oldest brother that I mentioned, he was killed at 14, uh, shot in the head. So my mom, she was going through her own thing, and uh, which led her to drug addiction. So all of us stayed under one roof. We were very poor, and poverty was extreme. Uh, rats, roaches. Oh, I mean, it was it was real tough. Will grew up in Riverdale, Georgia. Which is the poorest. Riverdale is the poorest city in Clayton County. Um it's the city with the most black people in Clayton County. Um, 13, 14, 15 years old. I mean, we was doing everything, house parties, we was drinking, smoking, you know. That's just what came with the environment. I'm looking back at it over time now, like seeing how we started out just breaking the houses, then it went from stealing cars, then it went to actual robberies and selling guns and selling drugs and different things. And it was just like, you know, it was crazy. Like, you, you don't know how fast that stuff consumed you. I, I knew deep down in my heart that I wanted better. I just didn't know how to get it. When he was 15 years old. Let me set the setting for you. Um, we actually, we robbed him in a cut. He, his girlfriend at the time, and some friends robbed another group of teens. It was a cut, um, short cut. We call, we call them cuts, but it's like basically like pathways that we make through people's backyards to lead us to like the stores and stuff like that. It got violent. One of the kids had his jaw broken, and one of Will's friends posted a video of the fight to Facebook. The next morning... I remember I was going back to my house, and I was like, let me get me a bowl of Cocoa Puffs. And before I knew it, I look outside, I heard a car door slam, and it was it was probably like cops. I couldn't even tell, because they had them all down the street. I couldn't even see when it, the cops ended or started, but they was just rushing to the house. Will was arrested for the first time in his life. I didn't know what I was getting arrested for. I had done so much stuff, but I was like, I hope it wasn't nothing I've done that was serious, serious. Nearly 3,000 miles away from Will in Washington State, this call will be recorded and monitored. Live Zion Houston Sconiers. Thank you. Hello. Hey, hey Zion, how are you? Hey, Katie, what's up? How you doing? Not much. How are you doing? Oh, it's a good day. Actually, I'm just now kind of getting up. Growing up in Tacoma Hilltop, a neighborhood infamous for its gang violence, Zion didn't really have a place to call home. I'm keep it real, man. I grew up getting, you know, uh, very brutal whoopings, mm. you know, and uh, because I grew up like that for a long time, it, it was kind of normal to me, you know. Zion was removed from his mom's home by Child Protective Services when he was 12, and then he spent years bouncing to different foster homes across the state. And so I, I was moved way out to all these different cities and places, and when you get out there, they take, you know, you take a young black kid like myself, and you put me with this elder, almost disabled white woman, you know, and, mm. and you know, there's a disconnect off the muscle. Uh, and then even with families, like I said, a lot of, I've been with families 
that were just in it for the check. Oh. I've been in houses where there's locks on the refrigerator. Without much stability at home, he turned to the streets. My ju- I ain't gonna lie, my juvenile history is pretty extensive. Everything from malicious mischief to um, tampering with witnesses, uh, first-degree robberies, I got an assault too, I believe. On Halloween night in 2012, when Zion was 17, he and four friends robbed multiple different groups of trick-or-treaters and other people in his neighborhood. One of his friends had a gun. The bullets loaded in the gun were the wrong size, so it wouldn't have fired properly if he'd pulled the trigger. But none of the victims knew that. The night we got booked, I think I might have been talking shit to the police, and he had asked me, do I want to talk to him about what happened? I was like, man, you, are, you know my rap sheet. I don't talk to you guys. You know what I mean? I was like, matter of fact, hurry up and get me down to the juvie before they serve food so I can eat. I'm hungry. He was like, well, shoot, with these charges, man, you might not be going to juvie, man. You got six first-degree robberies. I was, you know, I didn't, I didn't know any better. Zion was charged as an adult for the robbery on Halloween night, or the Halloween candy case, as it became known. He served five years and seven months in adult prison. In total, he estimates that he spent nearly 10 years of his life behind bars. He's 25. Biggest task of adolescence is the drive to independence. You need a caring adult in your life. You got kids dying every day, man. Where you live determines how you're treated. They are not just gangs of kids anymore. Minds are still taking shape. On this first episode of our seven-part series, we're bringing you two very different stories of two very similar young people. Today, Zion is in prison while Will searches for his dream job in aviation after earning his master's degree. Based on the laws and the places they lived, and the adults who happened to be involved in their cases, they saw dramatically different outcomes, setting their lives on opposite trajectories. I'm Anthony Wallace. And I'm Katie Seifer. This is Kids Imprisoned. Prison for kids. Gangs of kids. Kids, man. A lot of them kids never fell in love before. I still have nightmares about, like, being sent back there. I was, you know, I didn't, I didn't know any better. Some of those kids get locked up. Okay, so Katie, one thing that became pretty clear to us in our many months of reporting on this subject is that this system does not look the same for all of the kids who get involved with it. It's dramatically different based on a lot of factors outside of a kid's control, um, one being the place that they live. And a lot of experts that we talked to called this. I mean, we call it justice by geography. Where you live determines how you're treated as a juvenile. That was Elizabeth Kaufman. She's in charge of the Crossroads Study, this big, multi-year, multi-city effort run by researchers at the University of California, Irvine. That study focuses on what Kaufman calls tipping point offenses, medium-level cases like burglary or simple assault. What they found, she told us, is that for juveniles who commit these crimes, the likelihood of being locked up is basically a toss-up. It's basically 50-50. Some of those kids get probation or get some sort of diversion, and some of those kids get locked up. Mm-hmm. And it all depends on basically you know, what probation officer or what DA or what you know, who you're seeing that day. Right, and Kaufman's research, the Crossroads study, was really in important for us to understand the system. And they even talked about these crimes being called 50-50 crimes, like almost a coin flip. And as we heard from her and others, we started to think of the system as something like the game Plinko, which was made famous by The Price is Right. 
That's right, the game Price is Right fame. So if you're not familiar with Plinko. It is basically there's this giant board and a contestant will drop a disc into the top of the board. Hold one Plinko chip flat against the board and let it go. And it will bounce. Headed for. And hit a bunch of pegs all the way down. Get over there. $500. That was a $500 and land in a cup at the bottom. And based on what cup you land in, that is in The Price is Right, the amount of money you get. We started thinking about the juvenile justice system in the United States like a Plinko game. Right, and of course, it's not nearly as fun. No. Um, The outcomes are not uh, winning a lot of money. They could be getting locked up, in a detention center or a long-term facility, Mm -hmm. which a lot of advocates call prisons for kids. They have barbed wire and a lot of problems with solitary confinement, sexual assault, and things like that. And what we found and what we heard from a lot of experts is that the wooden pegs on the Planko board that determine your path down and where you end up are all of the adults that just happen to be involved in your case. So the police officer that might see you committing a crime, um, the prosecutor in the place that you live, or the judge that you see, or the probation officer you're assigned afterwards. Yeah, all of these people that as a young person or a family member of a young person who is charged with a crime, you have no control over who these people are. You may have some control over your defense attorney if Mm -hmm. you can afford to pay one. But if not, you might be just assigned a public defender. So basically you are being like a disc in a Plinko board, kind of bounced between these different players in the juvenile justice system. And they're kind of directing you towards these specific outcomes. They could be, like you said, those prisons for kids, these juvenile detention facilities, a number of which have very notable problems. Or you could be sent towards these diversion programs, which are designed to be rehabilitative and help young kids rebuild their lives or get the mental health treatment they need. Um, You could also be sent to foster care. You could be sent to a group home. The number of outcomes that you could experience are vastly different depending on the people who are involved in your case and where you live. Right. And I remember at one point, Elizabeth Kaufman told us, she used the word randomness. There's really just a lot of chance involved in this. And in 2018, according to the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, juvenile courts across the United States processed nearly 750,000 cases. That is almost three quarters of a million games of Plinko. And about 25% of those cases involve detention, um, which is locking up a young person away from home in some kind of secure facility. And what Kaufman and others have found is that that chance outcome has a really big impact on a kid's life. The more punitive, the more harsh, the more the severe sanction, the worse the outcome for the kid. I mean, you're not improving public safety. They're more likely to reoffend. They're more likely to get worse and, in fact, more likely to increase in violent crime. I truly believe that there is randomness in all states because what you have is our human beings making decisions, Mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, somebody's making the decision about whether to process it formally or informally. And that just creates human error and, 
you'll just find that error in different places at different states. We can actually see this disparity in the outcomes of Will and Zion's cases. Zion was in and out of juvenile detention from the ages of 12 to 17, and he said that during that time, he was never offered any sort of diversion program. He was always just put in juvenile detention Mm -hmm. and then sent back to his foster families. Then, during the Halloween robbery when he was 17, Zion was charged as an adult and sentenced to 31 years in prison. Right, and Will had a completely different experience after he committed his crime. He happened to do this in a county in Georgia where he was given an alternative to detention in the form of something called the Second Chance Program. I call it Second Chance Program, Um, but usually it's Second Chance after I've given a number of chances to kids. That is Judge Stephen Teske. Yes, my name is uh, Steve Teske. Uh, I am the chief presiding judge at the juvenile court of Clayton County, uh, Georgia. Uh, That's uh, a suburb of Atlanta. Teske was a judge assigned to Will's case when he was 15. In fact, when you fly into Atlanta, the world's busiest airport, you are in Clayton County. He's been a juvenile judge in Clayton County since 1999. And since he took over, juvenile detention there has gone down by 70%. And he's one of the many juvenile justice reformers across the country who are really committed to providing kids with these kinds of alternatives to detention, like this Second Chance program, which is specifically for kids who've committed felonies. That is a program that I call the Deep End program. Uh, the, the kids that go in the Second Chance Court are the ones who are jumping in the deep end, who are taking risks. But the risks are ones that can hurt other people. Some people that work with Teske actually went into Will's house and they noticed that he had these like, pretty impressive model planes just laying around. And they also noticed that on his report card, he had decent grades. So they saw that and they thought that, you know, he has a lot of potential and that putting him in detention is probably not the best way to foster that. Um, in the second chance program, he got cognitive behavioral therapy, and advanced classes in these aviation subjects he's interested in. And he was taking us out to the cabins, exposing us to horseback riding, zip lining. I mean, we were doing every, we were doing a lot of things we weren't accustomed to in Clayton County because um, we couldn't afford stuff like that. Yeah, and it really turned Will's life around. He got a bachelor's degree in aviation science and management, and now he wants to get his Ph.D. and work in cybersecurity. Right, and this is all because Teske believes that the juvenile justice system is fundamentally different from the adult one. It is about rehabilitation, not about punishment. So let's take a step back in time. The juvenile system in the United States doesn't exist on a national level as you might think it would. Instead, it grew county by county and jurisdiction by jurisdiction. So as far as reform goes, a lot of the experts we've spoken to have emphasized that it hasn't been this straight line. It's almost been more of a pendulum swinging back and forth between rehabilitation and punishment. And in the 1970s, youth incarceration rates were falling. 
and states were really looking to improve their detention facilities and emphasize rehabilitation programs. But then... The fourth challenge is to take back our streets from crime, gangs, and drugs. The 1990s hit. The era of the super predator child. We need to take these people on. They are often connected to big drug cartels. They are not just gangs of kids anymore. They are often the kinds of kids that are called super predators. No conscience, no empathy. We can talk about why they ended up that way, but first we have to bring them to heal. And the president is According to data from the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, in 1999, nearly two and a half million kids were arrested in the United States. And more than 100,000 were detained on any one day in a juvenile detention facility. Since the 90s, these numbers have actually been falling. In 2018, the number of kids arrested in the U.S. fell to just over 700,000. And the number of kids detained on an average day dropped to just under 40,000. But the U.S. still has the highest youth incarceration rate in the world. According to a 2019 study from the United Nations, the U.S. imprisons 60 out of every 100,000 kids. By comparison, the region of Western Europe, it said, imprisons just 5 out of every 100,000. So although the U.S. is trending in the direction of imprisoning less kids, there are, according to a lot of people, some pretty big issues with the juvenile justice system in this country. All new tonight, exclusive video of a chaotic clash erupting at the Broward Juvenile Detention Center. Some you can of the hear the chaos men. through the 911 calls, a riot that caused wild destruction throughout this juvenile detention an center. An uprising and hundreds of thousands of dollars in damage at the juvenile For detention For decades, center. black and Latino children have been locked up at rates far exceeding white kids. And this office has been working... It costs $109,000 in some states to lock up a teenager for a year with a 60% chance that that person will return to the very same system. That is a terrible return on investment. All these institutions exactly what they are. These are prisons for kids. Well, one of the things that we've run up against in the course of reporting on the juvenile justice system is that first word, juvenile. It's interesting because, I don't know, before doing this reporting, I never really thought a lot about what makes a kid a kid. And on top of that, how do you decide how to treat kids? We understand on a basic level that kids are different from adults. That's why they're not allowed to do certain things that adults are allowed to do. But at the same time, how do you take that into account when kids do something wrong? Right. And what we've heard is that recently, a big area that people have been looking to to answer this question when is a kid a kid is brain science and the biggest task of adolescence is really the drive to independence that's university of washington psychologist sarah walker and you have to do a lot of exploration to figure out to become make that leap from childhood to adulthood and feel comfortable about that that's a really scary leap so fortunately our brains in adolescence help us make that leap by making us a little more fearless. And that means we're that at that time in our lives, we're a little more willing to take risks both socially and, you know, physically. And so when you combine that with environments that have a lot of uh, real risks to youth, when youth are in environments where 
Um, there may be more acceptance of maybe there's more just sort of visible violence or there's more acceptance of drug use behaviors and such. And you put an adolescent in that context, they're going to be even at a heightened risk than maybe even adults in that situation for, and, and that can drive some involvement in the justice system. So Walker says that this growing up period goes at a little bit of a different pace for everyone, but generally speaking is wrapping up by the time that you turn 25. And until then, your brain is still growing and changing. And this science is behind Judge Stephen Teske's approach to juvenile justice. Of that, we know that kids' minds are still taking shape. They're still under neurological construction. And that they're prone to risk-taking behaviors. That many of them do violent things, but they really don't have a proclivity for violence. They did a really stupid thing, okay, for any number of reasons. You know, it was just... You know, us being kids and just doing just doing stupid things, but there was no like, oh, this time there was no gut feeling like, oh, I'm gonna get caught for this, because we had done way other stuff that you know I would have probably expected to get caught for before that, and it was like, you know, when I did, I thank God that it, you know, it happened that way. I committed delinquent acts when I was a kid, right? But imagine now you're a kid. And you, you already behind the eight ball because of the prefrontal lobe cortex not being developed, but you're living in poverty and you're black. Now, you're not just behind the eight ball, the eight ball's on top of you. So, of course, this question of what's a kid, what's an adult is really important when it comes to juvenile justice. Because back in 2012, when Zeon pulled off that Halloween robbery, the prosecutor that worked on his case did not think of Zeon as a kid with a developing brain. He was charged as an adult and was eventually sentenced to 31 years in prison. And this was a reasonably big news story in Tacoma at the time. And when it came out, not everyone was pleased to see what happened to Zeon. That was the most uh, ridiculous and heinous kind of outcome to a Halloween night caper uh, that I could even imagine. And I couldn't imagine that our system would be so blind to trying to find what these youth needed instead of focusing on the fact that they'd had a lot of contacts with the system and that one of them had a gun. So that is Washington State Senator Jeannie Darneal. She was elected to her current office around the same time that Zeon was put in prison, and his case inspired her to tackle juvenile justice issues as a legislator. That's where we embarked on a number of, uh, a number of bills. And more and more and more, our message that children are different from adults, and particular children, those that have experienced adverse childhood experiences, ACEs. Among many others, Darniel has helped pass a bill that prevented kids who skip school or run away from home from being put into detention. She worked on another that allowed young people up to the age of 25 to be tried as juveniles in some cases, and a big one that gave judges the power to reduce sentences 
based on a kid's age and maturity. And that last one came actually as a result of a Washington State Supreme Court case that reduced Zeon's prison time. So instead of serving 31 years, he served five years in seven months. Zeon's case, um, Zeon himself, certainly have inspired me. And um, I've gone on, I went to his wedding uh, two years ago. His most recent case involved uh, me having to do some extraordinary interventions again on his behalf. Will and Zeon have something else in common. Once they were freed after their teenage crimes, they reoffended. Right, and they both told us that they felt like they had targets on their back. Wills said he was arrested after simply being near another robbery, while Zeon got pulled over in a friend's car that had drugs in it. The cops, who had been following his friend, turned their attention to Zeon and arrested him for drug and gun possession. Right, and, and Zeon told us that all the cops in the area knew him right. very well. He's the Halloween candy case kid. Yeah, and he said on multiple occasions he got you know, harassed by them mm-hmm. when he was doing nothing wrong. Yeah, um, after he got released from adult prison after serving those five years, seven months, just he said he was walking down the street to his job, and they just stopped him on the side of the street and threw him to the ground. Right, and Zion maintains that the drugs that were in the car were not his. However, the gun was. Right. And he's not supposed to have one. However, he said you know he was in this kind of bad part of town where he's from, and he doesn't feel safe right. without one. Um, But, yeah, once again, Senator Darnielle and Judge Teske did what they could to help Zeon and Will. Teske believed Will's story and helped him get his record clear. And Darnielle helped Zeon get his sentence reduced. He was actually facing life in prison after he was pulled over this one time. And that's because of this three-strike rule Mm -hmm. that they have in Washington, where if you commit three felonies, you face life in prison. She spoke with the prosecutor and the judge and vouched for Zeon's character. And his sentence um, in this most recent um, charge was reduced from life to 11 years. He is less than one year into that sentence now. Here's what I do know. I, don't, I mean, I don't have the answers for how to stop crime except to build up people's livelihoods and their educational attainment and reducing poverty. But in this case, I I said, you know, whether you're 7 or 17 or you're 71 like me, you need a caring adult in your life. You know, there's just no question. Hello? Yeah. Okay, we good, we good. Over the course of our reporting, we spoke with Will and Zeon a lot. And the more we spoke with them, the more they became interested in learning the other's story. So we were actually able to arrange a phone call between Zeon and Will. Uh, me personally, man, I, I think uh, we need to, what I came up with actually a while back was, you know, coming up with some alternatives to, you know, the mass incarceration, the lengthy sentences, you right. know, and to, uh, you know, just throwing a, a youth life away. I believe there needed to be an alternative than just prison. You know, if you can rehabilitate, 
Right. Why not do that? And the difference between the outcomes, because me, me, I got picked up the river. You, you got to do the program. So it's also interesting to me. Like, does it work? Is it possible? And obviously, to me, it is. It was cool that you know I got introduced to you because you know you're actually a product of that. You got to experience that. Well, you know, when I got that second chance, a lot of people, and you know, I ended up coming back in here. A lot of people just say, "Oh, he blew it." See, this yeah. is why we shouldn't have let him out in the first place. And this, that's that's all it without even the yeah. consideration of what happened or how did he get right. to that point or, you know, right. how do we help or, you know, mm-hmm. and you just get X'd out right there off the muscle. And that, right. to be honest with you, that's the story of, of our life. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so when I didn't know what else to do, what came, right. what was natural to me came. Yeah, man, I, I I definitely agree with you, man. I just want to commend you on that. And, I, you know, it, I, I feel like personally because I come from, um, some of a similar background. I'm like, I mean, what are you going to do when you're down on your luck? You're going to go back the way that's survival. I mean, that's what you so talk. You know, you know, that, that's, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, and that's, that's the story of black America today. I, first and foremost, I want people to understand is, um, uh, kids definitely and youth, um, from minority communities and, um, poverty, impoverished communities. Uh, we definitely take on our environment. Where I come from, the demographics, College Park in, in Atlanta, and we got kids dying every day, man. It's just, it's just, it's, yeah. you know, it's like, it's, it's heart-wrenching, man. I mean, we take right. every opportunity that's offered in our surroundings. So, therefore, if you change an environment or try to uplift our environment first, then that's when you can start to talk about real change and you will see a decrease in um, juvenile delinquency. But at the same time, though, um, building a relationship, I feel like that's the most important thing. So you, you kind of get a sense that somebody actually sees you for once. That's why I feel like a lot of us, um, what we call love and respect, you know, we miss that at the house, especially when you're in poverty. You know, it's just, it's, it's all a bigger purpose. And, and I feel like neither one of our situations is going in vain because, you know, even we're working with Anthony and Katie, you know, this, our stories that get out there and people will see and realize what's going on. So it's a much bigger purpose. Right. I, I was thinking about that the other day about, you know, the new generations of humanity. You know, are starting, especially with these protests and what's going on in the world. People are standing up right now. Don't get me wrong. It, there are some rough times, but there's some beauty behind it. And uh, what I mean by that is, you know, like like I said, back in the day, you know, you got to think LGBTQ, that wasn't something that was considered. Black lives wasn't something that considered, um, you know, youth. The youthfulness behind a juvenile you know, was not considered. There's just a lot of stuff that I'm seeing is con- being considered now, if that makes sense. Yeah, the kids that's coming behind us, they're going to benefit off of those policies and that funding just because we went through that and we experienced that. And, I mean, you know, although we come far, we got a long way to go, but slow motion better than no motion. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, it's going to take time and perseverance, but... I'm glad we connected, man. So we definitely got to stay in touch. Yeah. You know, I'm definitely interested Absolutely. in whenever you touch down, man, and, you know, whatever we can do together or whatever we can work on, man, I'm all in. Over the next six episodes of Kids Imprisoned, Katie and I will talk to a number of our colleagues, as well as experts and young people with firsthand experience of incarceration to give a taste of the controversial, inconsistent, and occasionally brutal American juvenile justice system, one that locks up more young people than any in the world.
This episode was produced and reported by Anthony Wallace and Katie Cypher. Kids in Prison is a part of a larger project produced by Carnegie Knight News 21, the investigative journalism program headquartered at the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication in Phoenix, Arizona.